Coming up on Unpacked. I waited for the platform to be empty and then I jumped in front of the underground train. I lost consciousness, but I woke up underneath the train and I could feel rats crawling around me. Do you think you'd try and take your life again? Our guest today chats to us about his personal journey with depression and a suicide attempt. It's a painful one, it's heart-wrenching, but he has overcome, and this is his story. In 2012, Daryl Brown moved from Cape Town, South Africa to England to study for a postgraduate degree and find happiness. In September 2013, he tried to commit suicide by jumping in front of a London underground train. But miraculously, his life was spared. As a result, nothing would be the same again. Today, he shares his battle with depression and some of the events that led to him attempting to end it all. This is Daryl Brown's story. Let's unpack. Daryl Brown, our guest for today, joins us via video con. Daryl, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Lebo. So I'm going to dive right into the heart of this conversation. You made headlines for a suicide attempt, and you've spoken openly about your, your journey and the pain of you suffering with depression. Take us back to where it all began for you, your first recollection of the fact that, A, there might be something not right here. I was 12 years old the first time I thought about killing myself. Mm. I mean, I'd been bullied at school for being gay, um, even though I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Um, I just knew that it was something that was terrible and something that I shouldn't be because, you know, it was used as a... Um, I was just heard, hearing it from the bullies. Um, so it was, it was used as a weapon against you. Exactly. Mm. And... I think intrinsically, I kind of was born with an, an optimistic spirit. So I kept thinking, okay, you know, when I move to high school, everything will be okay. When I, when I move to university, everything will be okay. When I start a new job, everything will be okay. And I kept um, waiting for this one day when everything would be okay. And eventually I reached a point where I just, I couldn't wait for that day anymore because I didn't know if it was ever going to come. Mm. Um, and I just, I'd lost all hope. I just wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. Where, where would you say that optimism comes from? Because, you know, you, you're, you, you've touched on the fact that you would always tell yourself one day it's going to be okay. Is that a messaging that was affirmed in your home or is that something that you would tell yourself? That was something I would tell myself. Um, I never, you know, I never cut myself or hurt myself. Um, I just thought about killing myself and I... I thought, I don't know, I thought about how it would affect the people around me, how it would affect my family, and I couldn't go through with it then. So I kept thinking and telling myself that um, I just had to pull myself together and, you know, if I sorted things out around myself, then it would change how I was feeling on the inside as well, which obviously doesn't work. I want to ask, you know, this is a very personal question, but it's more for our viewers to get a bit more clarity. Some people will say, I wanted to kill myself, as in they were actively thinking about ways to take their own lives. Whereas other people speak about the fact that they'll say, I wasn't really suicidal, but I thought it would be great if I didn't have to wake up tomorrow 
Which was it for you? Was it an active, I want to do something about the fact that I no longer want to be here? I struggled with depression for about 10 years before I actually attempted suicide. And so I think I went through phases where I was planning and thinking how I could do it and, you know, the best way. Um, and then phases when I would be like, okay, I, I can get through this. Um, you know, something's going to change. So I'd say a bit of both at different times in my life. Um, but when I actually attempted suicide, I was living in London and that had kind of been moving to London had been my last ditch attempt at kind of curing my depression and fixing what was going on. Um, and when I, when I left South Africa, I kind of had in my mind, okay, you know, if this doesn't work, then that's it, then I'm done. Can I just take you back, you know, to while you're still in the family home, what was happening at home at that time? Uh, was your family aware of the fact that you were suffering um, or was it a complete secret? Because you say at the age of 12 is the first time that um, you had these thoughts. Were people around you aware? Nobody knew that's how I was feeling. Um, my family knew that I was being bullied, but they didn't know how bad it was. Mm. Um, and, you know, my, my parents were going through um, struggles in their relationship and they were struggling financially. So I didn't want to add to their burden with, you know, telling them about what was going on with me. Um, I thought I just kind of had to pull myself together and get through it. And um, I used to look at everyone else around me and I would look at my parents and I'd be like, everyone has issues, everyone has struggles and everyone else seems to be dealing with it. You know, what's wrong with me that I can't cope with this? Um, yeah. And, and did you have siblings growing up or it was literally you and your parents? I have one younger brother. He's four years younger than me. And he actually got into a fight with another boy um, in his class once who called me a faggot. Mm. Um, and my brother, you know, hits him and they got into um, a fight. So my brother and I, um, we, we love each other. And, um, you know, we're always there for each other. But we were never very close. We're completely different. Um, you know, we have different interests. We have different personalities. Um, so I wouldn't say we were ever super close, but we looked out for each other. Um, I want to touch on what you mentioned, you know, about the fact that you were teased about being gay. And because it's such a big part of your story, um, I wouldn't want somebody at home thinking, oh, he was depressed because he was gay or he didn't know he was gay. Um, maybe share with the viewers that are watching at home, how would you, now that you have all the information, consolidate your depression in relation to you coming out or not being open or not having figured out, being bullied, and your homosexuality? I think the root of my depression might have started because I was being bullied for gay, mm. for being gay. So I grew up in a very religious home, and I even... After I'd left school, I was very involved in a local church. And so I struggled to reconcile my sexuality with, you know, what I was being taught at church, you know, that homosexuality was wrong and sinful. And for years, I would pray and fast um, and ask God to heal me and make me straight. Um, so I think not being able to accept that part of myself and always feeling that there was something wrong with me was a big factor in the development of my depression. But mm. because I was so young when it started, um, you know, depression 
it changes the way your brain works. It changes um, the hormones that are released. It changes the neural pathways in your brain. And I was so young. My brain was still developing. My body was still developing. So struggling with depression for that long and from such a young age, it changed the way that my, my brain worked as well. So I think by the time I attempted suicide, it wasn't just about being gay or about being bullied or about um, religion. It was also a chemical um, imbalance inside of me. And I think it was just very important that I asked that question because there will be many young boys and girls who are grappling with those thoughts of trying to figure out who they are, of, of, of issues of their sexuality, and why that has a certain relationship with mental health. Um, so let's fast forward now. You know, you've gone through this experience. When was it if eventually that you realized this is who I am? When was it that you, sh you shared it? And did that actually make things better in terms of how you were feeling about yourself? Or is it something that you just continued to hide and that made things 10 times worse? I think when I eventually decided to come out, um, it was, I was already 23 years old. And like I say, for a long time, I'd, you know, tried to change and prayed for God to heal me. Mm. Um, and I actually went to a, a pastor who was associated with an ex-gay ministry. So they kind of taught people not to be gay and they had like ex-gay camps. Um, wow. And he started mentoring me. Um, and for the first time I could share myself completely. Um, I could talk about things that I'd been experiencing that I'd never been able to talk to anyone else about because, you know, he was also ex-gay. And so he could understand um, what I was going through and Can I just interrupt for a second? Do you currently believe in that concept of ex-gay? Absolutely not. It doesn't okay. work. And I think no, just wanted to clarify, yes. <laughs> I think it's very painful um, and damaging to, to the people who try to go through programs like that. And the president of the international ministry that um, kind of over, oversaw this guy that I was talking to, um, he actually um, denounced the ministry a few years later. Wow. Banded, yes. And he apologized for, you know, all the damage that they'd done to, to people. And so, I think that's very powerful for that to happen because the other day I saw a gospel artist that was speaking about um, some uh, the fact that he's still attracted to men, but the way the headline referred to him as former gay. And I was like, is that even a thing? Because... Can you be former gay? So just for clarity, you don't believe in previously gay, no. either are or you aren't. Yes, and that's how you're born. It's not something that you can teach or something that you can learn or unlearn. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, so I started being mentored by this guy who was supposed to be um, making me straight. And like I said, opened up to him the way I'd never been able to to anyone else. And so I developed a little bit of a crush on him. And then after about two months, I lost my virginity to this guy. Wow. And then, Isn't that so ironic? <laughs> totally. Like completely for, ironic that, that the person <laughs> who is trying to teach you to no longer be gay affirms it in some way. Exactly. Mm. And for a week after that, you know, I tried to contact him. I sent him messages and I tried to call him. And he didn't reply, he didn't answer. Mm. And eventually um, he said, you know, I love you and 
Um, but we can never tell anyone about this because it's wrong, it's sinful, but we can keep helping each other out this way, physically. And what? Then I was like, yes, exactly. I was like, this is, I don't know if I can swear on your show, but anyway, I was like, this is terrible. Um, and, and that was it for me. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I have to come out. Um, and it also felt like the closer I got to God and the more spiritual I became, the more being gay became a part of myself. It felt more like it was me. Um, so anyway, so I came out and it was very liberating. It was great, but it didn't cure the depression because it had, by that time it had, like I say, taken roots in me and it had changed the way my body worked. It changed the way it changed my, um, my thought patterns and the way that I looked at myself and looked at the world. And even coming out, for so many years, I tried to hide the fact that I was gay so I wouldn't listen to pop music or I wouldn't dress too fashionably, um, anything that I could do to try and not appear gay. Mm. And even after I came out for many, many years, um, I had to unlearn those, those behaviors of trying to hide my sexuality. And was that your way of protecting yourself? Absolutely. Mm. All I wanted when I was younger was to fit in and to be accepted and to be part of something. And so I did whatever I thought I could to, um, to be accepted and to get into the, the group. So for all these years that you were speaking about suffering depression, were you on any medication? Were you in therapy? Were you getting any treatment? Or this really was a solo battle that you were facing on your own? I never told anyone about it. I thought, you know, no therapist is going to be able to say something that's magically going to make everything better. Um, I didn't want to rely on medication or chemicals to to make me self, to make me feel a certain way. Um, I, yeah, I didn't understand depression and I didn't understand how therapy worked or um, how medication could help me. And now I'm on antidepressants um, and I still have talking therapy once a month. And I think it's it's amazing. Like if that's what you need to do to be the person that you want to be and to engage in relationships, then I think that's the responsible thing to do. I mean, if you're, if you're a diabetic, you take your insulin. If you're HIV positive, you, you take your antiretrovirals. There's no difference. If you're if you're sick, if you have depression or any kind of mental illness, take the medication because that enables you to be the father you want to be, to be the husband you want to be, to be the, the friend that you want to be. So let's fast forward to now this major event that uh, was completely life-changing for you. This was your suicide attempt. You've already spoken to us about the journey that you've been through, how your homosexuality contributed and the fact that you were suffering this depression on your own. What were the events leading up to you deciding to take your own life? You already touched on being in London. So I moved to London. I was doing my master's degree there, but that was more of just an excuse to like get to the city. Um, you, had, you had actually had, mentioned that this was your last hope. So had you told yourself that maybe if I get a fresh change of scenery, I will feel better? Is, is that what you had in mind at the time? So I'd been to visit a friend of mine in London um, about a year earlier. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, for the first time, 
I felt like I was at home. I felt like I could breathe. It felt like the first place that I could be myself. Mm. And so I thought, okay, if I move there, then, you know, I can start over and maybe that will cure my depression. But obviously my depression was inside of me. It came with me to London. And at first things were great. I had my first romantic relationship there. Um, I started studying. I, you know, became part of the, the gay scene for the first time in my life. And it was it was fantastic. Um, but after about six months, my relationship ended and I was devastated by that. I also wasn't doing as well as I had hoped to at um, university. And I was really struggling to get a job um, so that I could stay on in London after I finished my master's degree. And I just felt like everything in my life was a failure. I felt like I was the failure and I was the common denominator in all of these things in my life that was that were going wrong. And that, um, you know, everywhere I went, things just went bad. Felt like I would have to move back in with my parents and leech off them forever. Um, and I couldn't do it anymore. I was just, I couldn't wait for that day when everything might be okay, not knowing if it was ever going to come. And so I told all my friends in London that I was moving back to Cape Town. I deactivated my Facebook account so that they wouldn't know I hadn't come back to Cape Town. Um, I finished my master's degree. I gave my landlord a month's notice, um, you know, just tying up all the loose ends. And then on a Sunday afternoon, I went, I packed my suitcase and I went down to the nearest tube station and I waited for the platform to be empty. And then I jumped in front of the underground train. What year was this and how old were you at the time? This was 2013 and I had just turned 26. And was this your first suicide attempt? Yes. Yeah, it's been my only suicide attempt so far. And it's, and it's, it's, obviously, it's obviously very, um, it's not, I would say, the most common of methodology that people use. So what was the reason that you opted to jump in front of a train and not try to do something that might be less painful, less traumatic? I thought, you know, it would be, I thought it would be foolproof that, you know, I would never be able to survive that. And I didn't want to slit my wrists or hang myself or something in my flat. So for my flatmates to find, I didn't want to leave a, a mess for them to find. Um, and I thought, it, yeah, this method would be simple and easy and foolproof. Um, but obviously I did survive. Mm. And however, I lost both my legs in the suicide attempt. So I use a wheelchair now. So maybe just chat to us uh, so we just can get a bit of an understanding. And I'll come back to the important detail that you've mentioned is that now you don't have both your legs and you're in a wheelchair. Is In the build-up to this whole uh, massive event of your first and only suicide attempt, which is quite life-changing and scary, um, you had been planning. Was this something that you'd been planning for like a month or it's something that was in your mind for much longer? I'd maybe been planning it for what had been in my mind for about three months, mm. but I really started putting the plans into motion a, a month before it actually happened. Um, I wanted to... I wanted to, I delayed it for that long because I wanted to make sure I finished my um, master's degree because I was like, just in case, just in case I do survive, you know, I don't want all this work to be for nothing. Um, and it's so and interesting that you say that because <laughs> a part of me feels like, hmm, 
did he have hope? You know, you, you, you say you tied up all these loose ends, but I was listening to you say, I made sure I finished my master's degree. And I wasn't sure if you did that because you wanted that in your obituary, they say he completed his master's degree <laughs> or because there was a part of you that was like, if something should happen, I want to say I, I had my master's degree. Yes, I think it was, a, it was kind of a, a backup plan. Like I thought, okay, if I survive, it wasn't really important to me about an obituary or mm. um, it didn't really matter to me if anyone else knew that I'd completed it, but I wanted for myself to not have wasted all those months of, you know, doing all the work for the master's degree and then not finishing it if I actually survived. Was it a backup plan or was it this tiny little young Daryl that is optimistic and hopeful that things will still be okay and I will make it out of this? It might have been a little bit of a a young Daryl, a little bit of, okay, you know, maybe maybe after this things will change and things will get better. Mm. Okay, so you get to the platform, you've already told yourself that you don't want to inconvenience other people. You wait for the platform to be empty. Talk me through those moments that build up, that lead up to you deciding to jump. I, so I waited for the platform to be empty because I also, I didn't want anyone to see you. I didn't want any witnesses. Um, Yeah, I I thought it would be, I don't know, I wouldn't like to see that. I think it Mm -hmm. would be quite traumatic to witness something like that. Um, and then my mind was, was amazingly clear, you know, from the moment that I actually decided to do, to do this a month earlier, it was like a huge fog just lifted off me. I just, just this peace came over me because I kept, because then I could tell myself, okay, it's just a few more weeks. It's just a few more days. And then this will all be over. Then you'll be at peace. Mm. Um, so as I was waiting for the train to come, I just kind of took a breath and, you know, I wasn't very religious at all anymore then, um, but I did say a little prayer. I did just say, God, please save my soul, which I also think was kind of a, a just-in-case move, you know, just in case there is something, just in case there is a God, like, let me end this on good terms. Um, and then I waited for the train to come, and as I heard it coming, um, I just took a step. And, you know, it was weird because... The first time I stood on it on an underground train platform, even when I was visiting my friend in London, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can feel the train coming like through through the soles of your feet on the platform, and it was almost as if I just my feet got this itch. Just you know, just take one step. It's so easy. It's it's right there. Um, yeah. So now um, you've jumped. Were you conscious? Were you aware that, hey, I'm alive, or what happened then? No, it was the impact of the train that severed my legs. Um, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure. I was still, like, hoping, okay, you know, maybe this is all just in my imagination. Maybe my legs are still there. Um, and I also, I, I lay there, and I kept hoping to lose consciousness again because I, I knew that, if I lose consciousness again, there's a chance, there's still a chance that this could work, um, that that I might still die. Mm. But my first thought really when I woke up was like, are you, are you freaking kidding me? It didn't work. Like, I can't even get this right. Um, 
And I could hear people getting off the train above me. Um, and after a while, I started hearing the rescue team crawling towards me from the front of the train. And at that point, they didn't know that I was still alive. Um, and the pain started, like I started regaining some sensation and my legs really started paining then. Uh, and the pain got stronger and stronger. But I kept on thinking about, you know, it was a Sunday afternoon. And I kept thinking the people in the train are, you know, little old ladies and parents taking kids to the museum and stuff. And I was like, I can't scream now because it's, that would traumatize them. Um, so I just tried to like hold it in and try to, I don't know, grit through the pain. Um, but eventually I couldn't hold it anymore, especially since I heard the, the rescue team coming. So after a while, I just, I just said, please, it hurts, come faster. Um, and there was just this like dead silence, like they'd stopped moving. And then suddenly I could hear them moving with a little more urgency. Mm. Eventually the rescue team got to me and the first guy introduced himself to me. I can't remember his name. And they were wearing these um, hats with, you know, lights on the front. Mm. Mm. And, and I asked him, you know, my legs, my legs are gone, right? And he looked down at my, my waist and my legs and he, and he turned to the person behind him and he just said, this is a mess. Um, and then I lost consciousness again. Um, uh, but I found out later that they tried to reattach one of my legs on the platform, on the train platform, after they dragged me out. Um, but when I was in hospital, it got infected, and so they had to remove it anyway. Mm. Um, and I'd been, after that, I was in hospital for about four months. Um, I was in the trauma ward of the first hospital for about three months, and I think I only regained consciousness maybe a week after the actual incident. Um, and, and who, who was I, the first support system that actually, you know, because you'd been carrying this big secret, who was the first person that actually uh, that you saw at the hospital, that you spoke to, that was like, what happened? Are you okay? Who was that first person and what did they say to you? you know, the first person that made an impression on me was actually a nurse, um, a young male nurse, and he was... I was, I'm not sure how long after my, after the incident it was, but I regained consciousness and they were prodding me and, you know, shining lights in my eyes and trying to, um, I know, get me to respond. But I was still, I was just resisting. I was like, I can still, this can still work. I can still lose consciousness and die. So I just, I played dead and I pretended that I wasn't conscious. And so... The doctors told the nurses to wheel me to another room to do some tests, I think to do like an MRI scan because I wasn't responding. Um, and they were wheeling me down the passage and um, and the one nurse asked the other one, where are we going? And he told them about the MRI and then I opened my eyes and the nurse just came up to me and he, he took my hand and he said, hey, um, I'm Chris. You're, you're with us. We thought you were dead uh, or you, we thought you weren't here. And then um, and I said, you know, I was, I wanted to be dead. I was still hoping that it might work. And he didn't really know what to say to that, but he, he still, he kept holding my hand and he didn't let go of my hand until 
we like got to to our destination. Um, and that's that meant so much to me. Um, and yeah, after afterwards I when I fully regained consciousness, um, a team of psychiatrists came to see me and they immediately put me on antidepressants and they checked all of my um all of my depression symptoms, you know, how I was eating and sleeping and concentrating and all of that. Um, but they didn't do any talking therapy with me. They just put me on antidepressants and kind of monitored my, my depression symptoms. Um, in my preparation for the suicide attempt, I put a letter with um, my mom's contact details in it, in my suitcase on the platform, just to say, you know, this is my next of kin, please contact her and let her know. But in, I don't know, in the whole situation, the letter somehow got lost. So the doctors, the hospital didn't know who to contact. They didn't know who um, to get in touch with about me. Um, and my parents, I had sent a suicide letter in an email to my mom just explaining everything that I'd been going through and my reasons for, for taking my life. Um, but I'd sent it to her work email address on a Sunday afternoon, and I knew she wouldn't get it until the next day when she got to work. So by that time, it would be too late to do anything. So my mom got it on the Monday morning and she was frantic. And she also, she didn't know who to get in touch with. She didn't know how to find me or to find out what happened to me. She didn't know if I was alive or dead. So in um, essence, at the time, your only support system ended up being the people around you because your family didn't even know. They didn't get the news for a while. Absolutely. The yeah. nurses, yeah, mostly the nurses who you know, fed me and who were there all the time, um, bathing me and changing my, my bed linen. Um, they were the people I had the most contact with and they were lovely. Um, they, they made me feel so safe and, um, yeah, looked after. It was, they made a, a massive impression on me. Um, and eventually my, my parents got in touch with Interpol um, and it took Interpol three days to find me. And, in those three days, my parents didn't know if I was alive or dead, mm. um, what was happening to me. Um, but as soon as they found me, my mom um, got a visa and came over to, to see me as soon as she could. Mm. Um, and then, you know, for a month after she arrived, she stayed with me and she came to, to sit by my bed every single day for hours. And I was so angry at that time. Um, you know, I was angry with myself for what I'd done. I was angry with the universe for, for not... Not, not, not actually following through with your plans with you. Exactly. Yeah. I kind of felt yeah. like I was all the way up to the gates of heaven and just being spat back down yeah. to earth. So, Del, fast forward for us to now you are home. You've already mentioned that you've, you know, spent all this time in hospital. Your mom was with you. The two of you went through, you know, obviously grappling with the difficulty of um, where you were in your mind, that you're angry that it didn't work out, you're angry at yourself for having done it, you're angry with where you are in life. Let's fast forward to now you're home, you're back. How does that part of your journey end, the healing part of your journey? So my first talking therapy session with the psychologist was really the turning point for me. And, mm. you know, at first I spoke to her the same way I'd always spoken to everyone, wearing this mask of everything is fine, I'm going to be okay. Um, but she saw through it within five minutes. And for the first time in 
many, many years, I kind of felt real hope that there was someone who understood and there was someone who could kind of guide me through this. Um, and I, I mean, the antidepressants and the talking therapy both helped me, but I feel like I appreciated the talking therapy more because I felt like it equipped me, it gave me tools to kind of manage my mental health on my own. It felt like it was empowering me. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to South Africa, I got involved with the South African Depression and Anxiety Group because many of my friends came to me afterwards and said, we're so sorry you've been going through this. I've actually been in therapy myself for years. Um, and I realized so many of us had been going through the same thing, but we'd never opened up to each other. We'd never spoken to each other about it because we were ashamed. And there was this whole stigma attached to it. So I got involved in the South African Depression and Anxiety Group because I felt like the only way we can make it okay for people to talk about their mental health um, and to ask for help when they need it is if people like me who have kind of been through the worst of it are open about our stories and show that, you know, you can have depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety or whatever and still live a productive life, still be happy and I am happy. I have a fulfilling life, even though I still have depression. It's mm. something that I can manage. Um, yeah. And just one thing we didn't touch on is the fact that, you know, you've spoken about in your healing journey, uh, what has happened with the depression. You haven't touched on you now having to learn to live with a disability. Can you quickly share how you were able to deal with that transition? Sure. So I had... Um, a month of physical therapy where I was in the gym for six hours every day of the week. Um, but in many ways, coming to terms with my physical disability was much easier than, than actually dealing with my depression because you know, you, you're confronted with your physical disability every single day. You have to find a way to get to the toilet. You can't avoid it. Exactly. So you figure it out quickly because you have to, you don't have a choice. Whereas for so many years, I kind of pushed the depression to the back of my mind and tried to ignore it. But actually bringing it into focus and working through it was much harder. We're at that point now where we part, get to the part of the conversation where we say, where are you now? So now I have a full-time job. I'm working still in the marketing industry, but I've also got an honours degree in psychology. Um, I decided to, I wanted to be able to kind of help others the way my therapist had helped me. Um, and I've also started performing in concerts and I, I performed in a production of the of South Pacific at the Artscape Opera House in 2019. Um, and that's, that's always been a, a dream of mine to sing and act on stage. Um, and I never thought I would be able to do something like that now that I'm in a wheelchair, but um, it's been amazing. And I feel like I've broken so many boundaries and attempted so many things that I would never have tried um, if I hadn't had all of these obstacles in my way. I think I don't regret what I did because, you know, it has brought me to this way, to this point. And it's because of it, I've met so many people that I would never have known otherwise. I've had so many experiences that I would never have known otherwise. And I can't wish all of that out of my life. Um, But I do miss having legs. I miss dancing. Um, but I've, you know, I've made the most of my life and I, um, I have a great support system. I have fantastic friends. Um, my family has actually become closer since my suicide attempt. I think we all realized, you know, we have to 
tell each other that we love each other. Um, Because I think often you just assume that the people in your life know that you care about them. Um, So you don't say anything, but, you know, hearing it, saying those words, taking the time to to spend time together, um, it really makes a difference. So with all of that um, that you've said, all that you've experienced, all the knowledge you've gained, um, even outside of the fact that you now have uh, you know, a, a psychology qualification and that you've worked with organizations like the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. What would you say the young person listening that is connecting with something you're saying, what would you say they should look out for, maybe even know or be aware of um, in terms of the depression journey, but maybe also you can touch on you coming out as homosexual and on top of that, now being somebody living with a disability? I think no matter who you are, no matter what you're dealing with, um, it's always better to, to be open about it and to, to ask for help if you need it. Um, you know, you're not alone. There are people who care. And if you're, if you're in trouble, talk to someone. Um, I think the most important thing is no matter what your, what your obstacles or challenges are, uh, you know, just love yourself. You were created the way you were for a reason. Um, and, no one else can can give the world, you know, the exact combination of personality and talents and skills that you've got. You know, you are unique and, and we need that. We need you. So, Daryl, do you think where you are in your recovery, because depression is still something that you're facing on a day to day, do you think you'd try and take your life again? I don't think so. I've never seriously contemplated suicide again since my first attempt. Um, And although I do still have my depression and I think I'll probably have it for the rest of my life, you know, it is, um, I don't know, it's it's part of me. And I think, um, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm one of those people who is just prone to it now, but I can manage it. It's, I've learned how to look out for the warning signs. I know how to look after my mental health um, make sure I'm doing things that I love, make sure I'm getting enough sleep and exercising and um, eating well, healthily. Um, you know, all of those things create an atmosphere or create an environment in your body that is conducive to good mental health. Um, so I think, you know, everyone has a responsibility to, to look after their mental health and everyone has mental health. It's not just people who are struggling with their mental health. Um, you know, just the way everyone has physical health. You know, you have to go to the gym, you have to get exercise to look after yourself. And it's the same with your mental health. Everyone has to look after it and do what they can to to keep it healthy. Such an amazing story. And for me, the most important thing is that it ends in hope. And I hope that some of you watching, or even all of you watching, found something in this journey that you can connect with. And yes, while we need to also be asking for help, let's look out for those around us, especially those that seem like they're strong or they're doing okay. Let's check in on our loved ones. Our socials are on your screens. Make sure you get in touch. Chat to us. Good night. Next time on Unpacked. It's all those things that happened. And... um. I just tried to be a brave human being. Mm. The first time this comes up now. Was the intention to actually take your life? The intention was to end my life.
Unpacked with Rilebukhile Maboja. New episodes weekdays at 5.30pm on my YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe. Television edited broadcasts weekdays at 5pm. Open up to S3.